Hi, this is episode 24 of K. Ray Reads to You. Today we have part 2 of chapter 7 of Absolute Zero by Helen Cresswell. There was no reason to suppose that Zero would not then adopt his usual tactic of slumping down and waiting to be found. Some other element had to be added to the situation to make it possible for Zero to extend himself. This was where the bloodhound aspect of the operation came in. For a week now, Jack had been stuffing his washing—t-shirts, socks, underwear, and so on—into a duffel bag instead of the laundry basket. He had got this idea indirectly from a dimly remembered telling of Hansel and Gretel. Instead of dropping pebbles, Jack was going to drop clothing. If Zero sniffed around enough, he should, with the aid of these clues, gradually work his way home. "'He'd follow my scent to the ends of the earth,' Jack thought fondly. "'He's a one-man dog.' Nonetheless, he realized that Zero was going to have a shock when he found himself thus heartlessly abandoned, much more than Hansel, who had at least overheard his stepmother planning the whole thing, and had been prepared for it. Accordingly, Jack spent the outward journey throwing a lot of sticks for Zero, and doing a great deal of patting and praising.' He hoped that this would help Zero not to take the necessary desertion too personally. Halfway across the meadow, Jack opened the duffel bag. Everything in there seemed suitably smelly, and would give Zero a good strong scent to follow. He waved a sock under Zero's nose. "'Sniff, boy!' he commanded. Zero sniffed obligingly, and growled, and made to worry the sock. Jack snatched it away and threw a stick. While Zero was fetching it, Jack surreptitiously let the sock drop, and walked on. He kept this kind of thing up for the next mile or more. At intervals of around two hundred yards, he dropped an item of clothing. He ran out of clothes to drop in the middle of a small wood. It seemed an ideal place to set about losing Zero, because he was very much preoccupied by rabbits and squirrels. He had never yet caught a rabbit. Indeed, Mr. Bagthorpe swore to having once seen Zero pursued across the meadow by a rabbit. Nor, of course, had he ever caught a squirrel, though it was not for want of trying. He ran round trees, barking at them, and making great futile bounds, and gave the impression that he thought if he practiced these often enough he would, be, he would get to be able to fly and corner the squirrels that way. Jack watched him now, and felt at heart a traitor. He could not even say good-bye. It would be cheating." "'It's all for your own good, boy,' he told him silently. Zero was in full pursuit now, prancing into the distance after a squirrel running above. Jack saw his chance. He turned and ran. He did not stop until he was right out of the wood. Very faintly he could hear Zero barking. Jack looked about for the vest he had dropped at the edge of the wood, but could see no sign of it. There was not much wind, and so it could not have blown away.' "'It doesn't matter if I can't see it,' he thought. "'I can't sniff it out like Zero can. "'He'll do it.' "'He set out confidently for home, "'walking fast in case Zero caught up. "'From time to time he caught a glimpse of a sock or T-shirt. "'The trail was still intact. "'It was Jack's misfortune, then, "'to be the first to encounter Daisy's flood. "'Because he was there when the Bagthorpes returned, "'upstairs with Grandma,' He, too, was counted as an accessory after the fact, and came in for a good share of Mr. Bagthorpe's fury. Jack met the flood at the kitchen door. There were several floods, 
one, in fact, for each source of water in the house, but this happened to be the first. He looked down at his feet. Crikey! Water was actually flowing under the door. He pushed it open. The deserted kitchen was awash. Drifting over the tiles in little mad flotillas were empty paper cupcake cases in rainbow colors, which were, Daisy later explained, the navy. Jack did not at the time know this. He stood and boggled and wondered by what strange kind of accident they had come to be there. Here and there were a wooden spoon, a peg, and, like a raft, the breadboard. Jack was so thrown by this amazing sight that it was nearly a full minute before he registered that he could not only see water, he could hear it. His eyes went to the sink, then he waded through ankle-deep to the taps. By the sink was the chair Daisy had stood on to reach them. Still he heard water. Jack groaned. He splashed his way to the utility room. As he passed the open larder he could see a giant packet of sugar-coated puffballs drifting aimlessly past the vegetable rack. When this tap was turned off there was relative quiet. Jack listened. Still he heard water, dripping now, steadily and heavily. He went back into the kitchen and raised his eyes. Water was seeping in droplets, gathering and plashing down onto the flood below. In the hall the parquet was just covered and the rugs squelched slightly, as did his shoes. He pushed open the door of the sitting-room and saw water coming down the walls and through the ceiling. Grandpa sat dozing, as yet high and dry. Jack decided to leave him. There was no immediate threat to his life, and it would take more time than Jack could afford to explain to him what was happening, even had he known. Instead he ran up the stairs two at a time to meet a fresh flood on the landing. Now he could hear Daisy's voice. Soup, soup, beautiful soup, beautiful pea-green soup. Horrified by the implications of this chant, Jack threshed his way to the bathroom. His worst fears were confirmed. Daisy had poured a whole bottle of green bubble bath into the overrunning bath and wash basin. She said afterward that this was to make things more real, that she wanted the water to look like the sea, all foamy and green. When Aunt Celia heard this, she murmured something about the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn, and clasped Daisy to her. She's going to be a poet, she told everybody. Daisy, at present, wore only her knickers, and was busy ladling the green water out of the bath and into a flower-bowl, undies. "'Hello, Zack!' she squealed, seeing him. "'It's lovely! Ooh, it's lovely!' He rushed past her and turned off all the taps. "'This is soup, Zack,' Daisy told him, apparently not noticing that the supply had been arrested. "'Bootiful pea-green soup! It's not cold enough for sea, so it's soup!' Jack looked helplessly about him. He did not know where to start. "'And upstairs,' continued Daisy, happily, "'there's a fountain and a waterfall.' Jack rushed for the door and bounded up the next flight of stairs. The shower, trained directly at the floor, was at full pressure. Jack put one arm across his face to shield it and advanced. He was soaked from head to foot by the time he had groped for and found the taps. A telltale chair— its padded velvet, saturated, stood by the basin. Jack really did not know what to do. He stood mesmerized, 
and noticed that he had little green bubbles fringing the bottom of his trousers. Should he dial 999, he wondered? Did the fire brigade deal with floods as well as fires? He decided probably not. He went down and found Daisy just about to enter Grandma's room. I'm taking Grandma some soup, she told him. Jack actually found himself opening the door for her. Grandma was sitting by the window, a book in her lap, asleep. "'Wake up, Grandma Bag!' shouted Daisy. "'It's dinner time!' Grandma blinked her eyes and snorted and turned. "'What? What's that?' "'Look!' Daisy triumphantly plonked the flower bowl on the dressing table, and green water and foam slopped out. "'Soup, Grandma Bag!' Daisy told her. "'I know it's foamy, but it's not sea, I promise. It's too hot for the sea.' "'Thank you, Daisy,' said Grandma, recovering herself "'and realizing she was caught up in some kind of game. "'You haven't got a spoon,' Daisy trotted to the door. "'I'll fetch you one. I bet the ocean's full in the kitchen.' "'A true Bagthorpe,' Grandma told Jack as she disappeared. "'What is the child talking about?' "'He had to be careful,' he realized. "'Grandma was seventy-five. "'He had to break it to her gently.' He was still working out the best way to do this when from down below came blood-freezing yells of fury and despair. The rest of the Bagthorpes had returned. It turned out that Mr. Bagthorpe had looked in the previous week's paper by mistake, and the French film was not showing. He hated to be wrong, but he hated above all to be seen to be wrong, and had driven back in a mood of suppressed fury. When he opened the kitchen door, this fury instantly became unsuppressed, he had waded across the kitchen, and was now standing, wet to his knees, in his study, and yelling, "'Through a locked door! I don't believe it! Through a locked door!' Jack left Grandma and ran halfway down the stairs. Through the open study door he could see his father's soaked trousers and shoes, and hear dripping and spattering. Mr. Bagthorpe's desk had been flooded. The rest of the day was, even by Bagthorpe standards, memorable. Their annals were not without incident, but this particular event still stood out even years later. Daisy's flood divided the camp. Grandma and Rosie both fell heavily onto Daisy's side. Jack was neutral, his mother tried to be, and the rest were ranked against her. A fresh batch of cables was set off at enormous expense, as Mr. Bagthorpe was to discover when his telephone bill arrived. Mr. Bagthorpe's own cable was to the effect that if Uncle Parker did not return immediately and remove his unhinged daughter, he, Mr. Bagthorpe, would not be responsible for his actions. It also advised Uncle Parker to hang on to his money, as he would need every penny he possessed to restore the Bagthorpe's ruined house and furniture. Grandma's cable said, "'Daisy is a true Bagthorpe. Stop. She can stop here forever. Stop. She is a shining jewel of a child.' And Mrs. Bagthorpe said, "'Ignore, Henry, but Daisy really has been most trying.' The Bagthorpes had certainly been tried, as in Grandma's inaccurately quoted Methodist hymn. For so read but, and for lot read not. From trials unexempted they, dearest children, are, so let us not be tempted above what we can bear. And that's the end of Chapter 7 of Absolute Zero. Come and visit me at my blog, www.kray.org. See you next time.